Hello and welcome to the concluding part of this special two-part Faber Poetry podcast with David Harsand, in which we talk about his latest collection, Fire Songs, published in August this year. In this second part, we first discussed three poems written in response to the experience of living with tinnitus, and then went on to talk about David's attitude to religion, and in particular, the unsettling figure of Trickster Christ. This podcast concludes with a complete reading of the first of the Fire Songs, about Protestant martyr Anne Askew. But first, those tinnitus poems. Yes, I've got tinnitus, and I I gather there are... I've had it for a long time, and it's in both ears, and it's non-stop. And um, I've likened it in various places, not least in the note in this book, to the uninterpretable voice of angels, or voices of angels. But it's not quite as amusing as that sometimes, uh, or as seductive. I've had it for about 15 or 20 years, and you sort of learn to disappear it. I gather there are tinnitus helplines for people who kind of get so distressed they want to jump off tall buildings. And there's no reason for my having it. I was never in the army. I never stood clear. I never shot guns. I never went to too many rock concerts in my youth. So I don't know how it, it came about, but there we are. And you say in your note that it's usually associated with the ringing in the ears, and that's partly mm. true, but it takes... Different it forms. different forms. It does take different forms, yes. Sometimes it's like somebody walking through. I think maybe it's different through gravel, I was going to say, or, or stones on the seashore. Maybe it's, it's um, uh, different. For, I think it probably is different for different people. Sometimes it's a high-pitched whine. Sometimes it's a sort of blurry sound, rather like when you uh, dive into a swimming pool and come up and your ears won't clear and you hear everything sort of dimly and from far away. And it does actually uh, diminish your hearing a bit. And uh, and it's irritating, but it's particularly irritating for me because I work in music theatre and opera. I remember once saying to George Benjamin, who, when I said I had tinnitus, sort of edged away from me as if it might be contagious. <laughs> um, but he wrote a very beautiful piece called um, Long-Legged Fly. It's based on a Yeats poem. And it starts with a very high solo violin note. And he said, well, what's it like? And I said, well, if I'm paying long-legged fly, George, I don't know whether it's you or me. Uh, (laughs) So what does it do to your appreciation of music? It's one of those irritating things where uh, it's like going to the doctor and your pain goes away. With, With tinnitus, you can sort of disappear. You can be not conscious of it. It's always there. But you can be not conscious of it until somebody says, oh, have you got tinnitus? And suddenly you can hear it. So with music... It's when I need to hear music that that it becomes tiresomely evident. You can still hear the music as a a completely separate event, but the tinnitus is also there. It doesn't sound like somebody playing a high note on the piccolo or something. You don't, you would never confuse it. It's just there. It's just, it's just irritating. And I was asked a while ago by Lavinia Greenlaw to, to write a poem for a book she was uh, editing that that had to do with um, uh, health, physical... I've forgotten exactly what it was called now. I think at the time I called it Lavinia's Sick Book. Uh, <laughs> um, it was a very good anthology, extremely interesting anthology. But I think I think it was done for one of the, the, one of the um, teaching hospitals or something of that kind. It was published by Gulbenkian uh, Foundation and so forth. So I thought, well, I, I'll do tinnitus. I'll, 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 I'll flirt I'll, with a poem about tinnitus. And the image that came to me was I was in Italy once at a a little festival, not a poetry festival, a music festival, 
and um, somebody was playing. I think it was guitar and flute. There, there were two people, and there were there were swifts circling. It was in a square, and there were swifts circling in the square, and there was this continual scream of the swifts going on over the music of the of the guitar and flute. And I sort of started vaguely with that notion, although it comes in the second section of the, of, of, well, the second of the sequence of poems about tinnitus. Yeah, I could read that if you, if you yes, like. Yes, please do. Okay, well, this is uh, Tinnitus, and the, and the subtitle is August, Sun Beating on the Rooftops. You are walking down a road that is white with dust. It could be a dream. It could be the dream will last unlike any shape or shade of love you care to name or find and follow if you must. Empty, white with dust, and something stopless in the air, the chain stitch of cicadas, a dynamo somewhere. What if the music of the spheres were the cryptic nay plus ultra of human fears? A single note drawn out beyond imagining, pitched for dog or rat by a man with a single string on a broken violin. Easy to see that his penance for gall is never to let the music settle to silence. Largo, allegro, con brio, glissando, crescendo, vivace, veloce, di capo, di capo, di capo. Something indelible behind your eyes. The swift's wide wall of death between the campanile of San Giovanni Battista and balconies filled with flowers. A seamless scream flowing behind the bird a tiny twister, too sharp and shrill to be anything but lies. See, there's the rat again getting in. <laughs> um, and, and lies, it seemed to me, was another light motif of this collection. Oh, really? Oh, really? Well, a lot of lies. A lot of in lies. It. What in Dreambook and so, yeah. So this is the second um, Tinnitus poem. It's called Tinnitus May, Low Skies and Thunder. And um, the reference to rough music is, of course, the um, method of disapproval used by women to focus on, identify, point out uh, a young woman who had a child out of wedlock. And you'll find out as I read what rough music is. Rough music in the lane, the love child lapped in blood and safe at her breast. The pain echoed in wood on wood, steel on steel as they come, the women in their blacks, to hound her from house and home, bands of bitches and clacks of crones with their pots and pans, their hooks and ladles and bowls, to beat outside in the street, to stand at her window and howl, while the child takes a taste of green milk and the dead of night is all she has of her own, and the music goes on and on. The third is called Tinnitus, January, Thin Rain Becoming Ice. 
And this is where the tinnitus um, changes its nature. Now footsteps on shingle, make of it what you will. Seabirds roost on the breakwaters, accustomed, of course, to twilight. The spirit lamp in that house on the headland could easily fall and spill, and the fire burn all night. Sometime later, a subtle ghost, yourself in memory perhaps, might well set foot up there amid the clinker and smoke, the whole place silent and still, except you bring in the tick of cooling timbers and then the birds in flight. Now chains through gravel, make of it what you will. Does that suggest some kind of reconciliation, some kind of coming to terms with tinnitus? No, I think make of it what you will. I, th I, I, I think what I was really... I think why that came in is because it's simply going to be different for different people. And I say footsteps on shingle, and I know exactly what that means in terms of my tinnitus, but other people might well hear footsteps on shingle, which is not quite the same thing. So make of it what you will is really, I suppose, I haven't really thought of it, but I guess it's, I'm really saying I can't really describe this to you, but be aware of the fact that it's... That it's um, it's it's threatening. <laughs> I always learn new words from your collections. I know that's a small pleasure, but it's definitely a pleasure that I that I take from what you write. And I learned the word docetic from this oh, yeah, collection, docetic, yeah, docetic yeah. which relates to the figure of trickster Christ, yeah. which is really quite a troubling and quite an undermining kind of heresy. It was a it was a heresy. Can you say something about about that and what and what how, well, how this figure worked his way into your imagination? Well. well um, yeah, I, I wrote this piece with Bert Whistle called uh, The Ring Dance of the Nazarene. And um, I just said I was, I was brought up a Baptist and Fiona Sampson was reviewing Night and she made this reference to, to the fact that, that my early encounters encounter with poetry was the Border Ballads. And after I read the Border Ballads when I was about 12 or 13, I was kind of lost to poetry. You know, I, I'd stepped outside the world I was living in um, on the, the people around me were living in into a world that was uh, significantly, it seemed to me, you know, emotionally different, different in terms of perception, different in terms of the way you thought the world worked, and so on and so forth. So yes, Fiona Sampson, yes. when 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 reviewing Night, made this mention of the Border Ballads, but she also made this other very clever and perceptive connection between me and the Baptist hymnal and I could see that she was absolutely right you know well I'm not a convent I'm not a Christian I'm not a believer but I, I have a, a sort of slightly unconventional relationship with the notion of religion and, and with the Christ figure and so on and so forth it's impossible I think to you know grow up believing and being told to believe being made to believe if you like going to church three times a Sunday and so on and so forth so The Ring Dance of the Nazarene, this piece I wrote with Bert Whistle was uh, an interesting piece. It was a docetic text. So they were heretics, and the Gnostic Gospels were um, a part of, I think, the, the, the docetic culture, but 
but the Docetic culture was uh, specific and in part had to do with a sort of shape-shifting Christ, a trickster Christ, who in that in in that piece, which um, is is a quite well-known piece uh, that I adapted as the Ring Dance of the Nazarene, Hulse set it as 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 the, as the hymn of Jesus. In that, Christ slips off the cross with a, for a, with, with a word for the to have a word with the disciples, and teaches them by dancing with them. A notion that Harry used in an opera he did not with with me, uh, an opera uh, with the libretto by Robin Glazer. So this notion of a trickster Christ who could shapeshift and whose feet, who sometimes appeared as an old man, sometimes as a child, and whose feet didn't quite touch the ground when he walked and so on and so forth, um, intrigued me. And is the critical thing that he didn't suffer, and that was part of the, the nature of the trick? He wasn't, it, he seemed to be suffering like a human being, but he wasn't. And is that is that? I can't remember. I can't remember whether that text includes the notion of, includes a determination about whether or not he suffered. In other words, whether the crucifixion was, you know, a piece of um, imagination or trickery or something that he was in control of or not. But when John F. Dean asked me for a a poem for an anthology he was uh, putting together, I mean, um, an issue of Poetry Ireland that, that would have to do with the Christ figure. And this business of the trickster Christ came up and I realized I was still intrigued by it and I sort of hadn't I hadn't dealt with it I hadn't I hadn't left it uh, I hadn't finished with it and the, the idea of the miracles uh, struck me and it it wrote itself really quite quickly I mean for me when I say quite quickly I mean to say you know inside of a month or something laughter comes into it that the, the word laugh or laughed or laughter comes into each of the tiny sections that has to do with this miracle or that but it also has to do with the miraculous not necessarily being an improvement in things. For example, you know, the man who uh, had the devils turned out of him, turned into swine and, and, and ran over a cliff, is not at the end improved uh, by becoming what we refer to as normal. And it seemed to me that there were always, there must have been, or had they been, truths there would have been reversals in the miracles so anyway yes i started with that little piece of well little piece of docetic text and when i was writing the piece with bert whistle i drew in uh Holtz just used and other people have used there have been so many versions of it there's a hopi indian version of it uh, a hopi native american i suppose once you say version of it but i drew in a lot of um text from around that central hymn um, a sort of um, re- repetitive litany-like piece of text. And with Tricks to Christ in, in Fire Songs, uh, I came back to to that notion and the notion of of the miracles being something other than they seem to be, uh, there being a dark side, if you like, to miraculous activity. Yeah. Which, which is a, you know, if you're a person of faith, is a quite a discomforting notion, isn't it? I suppose it would be, yes. I can't, I can't shake off, even even though um, I lost my childish faith, childhood faith, when I was about fifteen or sixteen, and I would never now describe myself as a believer. 
I can never quite bring myself to say I'm an atheist. There's something I can't, in some way I can't shake off the Christ figure and I don't quite know why. When I was a child, uh, I used to sleep in my grandmother's bed while she worked. She had a job as a night telephonist and we were kind of short of beds. So, so I slept in her bed. So I slept in her bedroom and she had on the wall a reproduction of Holman Hunt's Light of the World. And the cars used to come down the main street of the village in which we lived and the and the lights would sweep round the walls. If this doesn't sound revelatory, I don't know what does, but uh, the lights would sweep round the walls. And while I lay awake, every light that went past round the wall would illuminate Holman Hunt's Light of the World. It's very difficult not to be affected by that when you're seven years old. There is something about the mysteries involved in all that that's unshakable. I mean, I know that other cultures have their mysteries too, and I don't for a moment, and I think they're all connected, and I don't for a moment um, pick one over the other. But, you know, I'm I'm English, and I was brought up in a Christian tradition, so, so the mystery for me lies. The first time I ever went to Spain when I was quite young, at Christmas time, and in the markets they had, you know, the the um, nativity figures. So they'd have a an ox and a whatever else they had, an ox and an ass, a little manger with a tiny Christ figure in it, Mary and Joseph, and and so on. Three shepherds, perhaps. Of course, there was no. There's nothing in the Bible about there being any animals involved at all. But there we are. And I heard them being described. I heard that little collection of figures being described when it was being sold to someone as a mysterio and it made the hairs rise on the back of my neck so I knew I wasn't free of it. <laughs> and that image of the light of the wild comes into the the first poem in the collection doesn't it the, the mistress Askew and in yeah. the, the person who's nar- narrating the poem sees that image in the in the flames and the bonfire. Yes that's right yes I've forgotten exactly what did I say about that. Oh, yes, yes. Well, and Fox's Acts and Monuments, too. I mean, that was the picture of Anne Askew at her martyrdom, as it were, that I have uh, fictionally affixed to the chapel wall in the um, Sunday school, Baptist Sunday school, at um, in, in this place where I lived in Princess Risborough in mid-Buckinghamshire. But uh, um, the light of the world... A mild-mannered Christ, his jaunty crown of thorns. I mean, that was for sure, but it wasn't actually on the wall in the... uh, But that's a little tiny, that's a touch. That's a a soupçon of autobiography, I suppose, but not really. You you draw on what images you have to hand. Maybe we could end, David, with you reading the the first of the the fire songs. I will, I will. Um, Anne Askew was a Protestant martyr, as I say, and she was determined to preach against um, transubstantiation. This was at the end of the reign of uh, Henry VIII. So although Henry VIII, as we know, had his own views about uh, transubstantiation and Rome and so on and so forth, he was still doing deals with the Spanish and uh, wasn't too keen on there being too much disruption. And Anne Askew was, was preaching pretty she was an extraordinary woman. I won't sort of rehearse, rehearse her entire history now, but uh, she was an extraordinary woman. And um, she wrote poetry. And she wrote poetry, indeed she did. 
Uh, she wrote poetry on the night before she was executed. That's not an unusual thing to have done, I suppose. But, but uh, yes, she and, and she was absolutely steadfast. She was told during her trial that at any time, if she simply recanted, she would be let go, and she would not. And she knew what that would mean. And she should not have been tortured because she was she was well born. But uh, it it was thought that she might be in in cohorts with the queen in terms of her belief and the Queen's belief, and that, that was something they wanted to know. But the, but the, the um, executioner slash torturer, whatever, refused to continue racking her. And so two of the court officials took over, Risley and Richard Rich. Anyway, here is, the, here is the poem. The first of the fire songs, a song for Mistress Askew. There's an epigraph by uh, John Bale, her apologist um, and a commentator on her trial which is as follows, uh, filthiness, rust, menstrue, swill, man's dirt, adder's eggs, the breed of lies. And there are also moments where I break off and, and say notebook, and these are really just slightly better sculpted entries from the notebook I was keeping when I was looking at uh, passages in her the account of her trial. The firebug rises whistling from the fire, slats laid on the overlap, branches at a pitch, as for Anne Askew, wordless under torture, so broken the hangman's crew carried her to the stake, a seat where she sat astride. It has come to this, Bramble and thorn, lumber and junk, dead stuff, whatever would burn. Charge and denial, the bald accounts of martyrdom, the mechanics at work, their gift of transformation, torchlight and iron. She stripped to her shift unbidden and climbed up to the machine. When it took hold, she was lifted clear of the bed, her body hard-strung, the wrench and crack of green stick. Notebook. She belled, but speak no word, and silence always her gift. The frame of her in the fire, black to the bone, her head a smoking cinder, smiling, smiling, smiling. Some stood close enough to catch the hall and roar of flame in the summer wind as it fed, close enough to hear the shrivel hiss of burning hair, to see her sag and slump, to witness the pucker and slide of her skin, the blister rash on her eyeballs. In the fire lies your salvation, Anne, they said. What greater thing than the brush of his hand as he stoops to take up your soul? Notebook, her Newgate poem. A woman poor and blind, more enemies now I have than hairs upon my head. She stood her ground. Then the bishop said, I should be Brent. 
Anne, you are nothing to me. Only that you knew best how to unfasten your gown while they waited at the rack. Only that she was hard-pressed, which I can't now shake from my mind. Only that black flux flowed from you, that they let you void and bleed. I set this fire in a hard frost, early evening, the garden's winter leavings, the unretrievable, the piecemeal burdens. Paraffin to start it, that dry woomph. And I saw her ghost chained there, the woodcut from foxes, acts and monuments that hung on the chapel wall, beside the light of the world, a mild-mannered Christ, his jaunty crown of thorns. The minister's stage effects were rage and unforgiveness, his colours red and red again, which were heart's blood and hellfire, the least of us already lost. Notebook Johann Bale, her apologist By the four heads understands she the hearts and minds of men. And then Christ would speak in dark similitudes, and of her judges, they breed cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. That they gave her cripple water, that she ate spoiled meat, that this was her penance, that she saw those long nights through bedded on stone and straw, that women in the garden by the white tower turned to one another amazed. What is that animal? The river beat hour after hour as they racked her back from the water gate. That job taken in hand by Riosley and Richard Rich. Then the pyre at Smithfield, those there to watch Norfolk, Bonner, Bowes, priests, judges, one and all the devil's dishwashers. Before they lit the stack, Shaxton preached repentance. Broken, she listened. The crowd stood round in a ring, ten deep, and felt the scorch. Notebook Johann Bale in Sorrow so had Anne Askew the flaming brands of fire, nor screamed until the first flame reached her breast. My dream of her puts me in close by, her poor bare feet, her shift just catching a flame that chases the line of the hem. And when I wake in sunlight, that flare is the flare in her eye, that rising note in my ear, the singing deep in green branches, that low rumble, her blood at a rolling boil. And what she screams from the centre now, as her hair goes up in a rush, 
as her fingers char, as the spit on her tongue bubbles and froths, as she browns from heel to head, as she cracks and splits, as she renders to spoil the only thing she can get to me through the furnace as I lean into her is, yes, it will be fire, it will be fire, it will be fire. David Harsant was reading Fire, a song from Mistress Askew. That ends this special two-part edition of the Faber Poetry Podcast. For more information about all of David Harsant's books, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll find videos of David reading more poems from Fire Songs, which we recorded after this interview. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber on the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud. It now amounts to over a 100 hours of interviews, and includes several Faber poets, among them Joe Shapcott, Michael Hoffman, Christopher Reed, and Don Patterson. Just search for Faber Books, SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.